May of 2002, the captain of a tugboat was transporting a large barge across the Arkansas River when he suffered a medical emergency and passed out. And this happened as he was passing under the I-40 bridge in Oklahoma, and the barge collided with a pier of the highway crossing, and a 580-foot section of the bridge plunged into the water. And the terror that was so great was not everyone who was driving on the bridge knew that that had happened, that the bridge was out. And so while the vehicles on the bridge immediately dropped into the river, others kept driving forward, having no idea that the bridge was out only feet in front of them. Traffic only came to a halt when a fisherman nearby witnessed more and more cars driving, plunging into the bridge failure. And so what he did is he shot a flare at a driver in an attempt to get his vehicle to stop. But in the end, eight passenger vehicles and three semi-trucks had fallen into the river. Fourteen people had lost their lives. And if you and I were there, what would we have done? We knew of impending disaster for Hall. We're driving in that direction. We have done everything possible to stop that traffic. Maybe we would have been the ones to shoot the flare. Maybe we would have jumped out of our cars and waved our arms and warned people that, in fact, danger was ahead. The bridge was out. When in reality, this is what it's like for those who are following Christ, knowing that one day all who die are standing before God with eternity hanging in the balance. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, For it's appointed for uh, once unto man to die, and after this comes judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. And so knowing that that truth is true, those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ have been given an assignment. It's to stand and warn people who are heading towards judgment for those who do not know that spiritually speaking, the bridge is out and they are in danger. And this is what it was like for the prophet of Jeremiah and many of the prophets of the Old Testament as well that we've been learning as we've been in this series called The Story. And so if you've got your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you're using, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. That's in the Old Testament on the left side of your Bible if you're still using a paper Bible. When I first started preaching, I used to say it would encourage me to hear the rustling of the Bible pages. And now when I preach, when I look out, it encourages me to see the warm glow of God's Word on people's Phones and tablets. Whatever you're using there, turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 uh, this morning. Jeremiah was the final prophet for the people of Judah while they were still in Jerusalem warning them about their sin. And a couple of weeks ago we talked about how the uh, nation of Israel at this point in redemptive history have been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom uh, called Israel which is ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah which was two tribes. What we learned, uh, that Israel had been ignoring God over and over. And so finally in 722 B.C., the Assyrian army comes and captures the northern kingdom, all ten tribes, and didn't just capture them. It literally wiped them off the face, uh, face of the earth. Uh, their, their scripture story ends at that point in time with the capture 
of the Assyrians. And so uh, what we learned for the southern kingdom is that God raised up a godly king during that time named Hezekiah. And so he led that southern kingdom back into a place of repentance. He was one of only five godly kings during all that time, over 30 kings leading during that time. And so what happened is an angel uh, came and killed the Assyrians. So the same Assyrian army, 185,000 strong, that wiped the northern kingdom off the face of the planet, God uh, delivered the southern kingdom from the Assyrians' hands. But here's the problem. We would think, and hopefully we've learned this by now, 17 weeks into the series, that, that all that God had done, and all the provision God had made, and all the incredible leading God had done, that they would turn their hearts back toward Him, and they'd say, Oh God, after how good you've been to us, the least we can do is be loyal to you. But once again, even though this deliverance has come for the southern kingdom, they've fallen back into idolatry. And so that's where we meet the prophet Jeremiah, and he receives this message from the Lord. All right, so we're going to look at Jeremiah as our starting point this morning. Uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you or set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so God tells him, Hey, that listen, before that uh, knit you in the mother's womb, I, I knew you before you've even been born. I called you to be a prophet, to speak a message on my behalf to the nations. And so Jeremiah responds, often as we do, like, I'm not qualified. Uh, God, I'm simply too young for this assignment that you've uh, granted to me and uh, cannot help but think of a very similar thing that God told Moses. Remember, he tells Moses, hey, go and lead the people out of Egypt. Moses goes, man, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not very eloquent. Uh, you should get someone else. Um, so in Exodus chapter 4, uh, verse 12, God tells Moses, hey, don't worry. I'll, I'll put the words in your mouth. You just trust me. You ever been scared to tell someone about Jesus? I have, and I'm a pastor, and most of us are terrified. So it's one thing to share something out there on Facebook, but it's another thing to speak in person with someone else about their need for Jesus Christ. And often we respond like Moses or like Jeremiah, like, I, I don't have the words, and they're going to ask questions that I don't know the answer to, and so we just shrink back. Uh, but listen to what God promises and tells Jeremiah in light of his inadequacies. Uh, in verse 9, he says this, And then the Lord put out his hand and, and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so Jeremiah understands that, listen, God's given him an unenviable assignment. It's to go and preach the gospel to people who are, he knows are going to be hostile to his message. It was a reckless society full of violence and famine and anarchy and, and Jeremiah was scared to go but he deeply loved the people there and he deeply wanted to see them repent and so he surrenders and in doing so he models the first principle I want you to see uh, in this passage this morning which is simply this aligning our lower story requires boldness all throughout this series we've been learning about the upper story of what God is doing 
in redemptive history. These are the events God is sovereignly orchestrating to bring His kingdom agenda to pass. What we've also been learning is at the same time God is doing that, you and I have the responsibility and the privilege to make decisions to align the lower story of our lives with the upper story of what God is doing. And in the lower story of our lives, uh, if we want to be on mission with God, guess what? We're going to have to have boldness to speak a message that will not be received well at points in culture, which is exactly where Jeremiah finds himself and where you may feel you find yourself in the culture that we're living in. Here's some language that uh, we've used before when it talks about being on mission. We have a responsibility both to demonstrate the gospel and also to declare the gospel. Now in my experience, we're a, a lot more bold when it comes to demonstrating the gospel. We'll go and rake leaves for someone or pass out water in Jesus' name. We'll, we'll buy the food for the car behind us uh, in the drive-thru line, which, by the way, I'm always a huge fan of. Amen? Like when I find out someone's buying in front of me, I say, you know what? Uh, can I supersize that, right? I don't want to rob them of a blessing. And so we'll do things like that in demonstrating the gospel, and, and that's needed and necessary. But here's, we cannot be content to demonstrate the gospel at the expense or exclusion of declaring the gospel. And so here's a reminder, we do good works to gain an audience for the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not just nice people doing nice things for other people, we're rescued people. Who are speaking to other people who need rescue. We're people who want to speak up for those who are driving and have no idea the bridge is out spiritually. That was the mission of the, all the prophets in the Old Testament to Israel. They said, hey, you're God's chosen people, but you're acting foolish. God, God has done so much for you. God has delivered you time and time again. But you keep chasing after idols and so I'm just warning you that eventually the love of God will give way to the justice of God, knowing that no one was going to receive it. So it required holy boldness. And guess what? At the place we're in, in our culture moment, it's going to require boldness from us as well. Now, here's my experience. We're bold with lots of things, are we not? We're bold about our political opinions and sharing those and correcting those who don't agree with them. Cutting off relationships because of that boldness about our political opinions. We're bold about our sports fandom. Right? Like if anybody speaks up against our team, which by the way, it is God's providence on the Browns this year. Can I get an amen? Like what is wrong with that? You talk about a messed up year. <laughs> but we're bold about our fandom, right? Like some of you found out that your friends were rooting for Alabama. They're no longer your friends. We're bold about our politics, we're bold about our fandom, but here's the reality. Many times when it comes to speaking up for Jesus, we often shrink back and hear me, I'm guilty of that as well. Now, let me ask you a question. In this year, when the world needs hope, if you want to be bolder in speaking up for Jesus, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, everyone, yeah, and someone's excited, Right? Pentecostal has slipped in amongst us. And so, here's the reality. Now, now, when we think about being bolder, unfortunately, what we think of is getting better at winning debates. What we think of often is just being abrasive or rude or more aggressive. But here's the reality. I'm going to give you a sure, fire, biblical way to be bolder in your witness 
for Jesus Christ. It's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. And here's what that verse says. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And so what's he saying? The antidote to fear is not less fear. The antidote to fear is, is more love. And so if you're listening, say amen. Here's what that means. If you and I want to be more bold in speaking up for Jesus, not be a better debater or, or louder or meaner, angry or, or more abrasive to win arguments, here's what we should do according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. We should pray regularly that God would grow our love for people who do not know Jesus Christ to the point where love drives out fear. We're compelled by love instead of constrained by fear. So the, the basis of boldness is unconditional love. Let me repeat what I said last week. One of the reasons uh, the church has lost our influence in culture is because we treat people who are not Christians like the enemy instead of the mission field. You cannot love people and hate them at the same time. We see them as the ones destroying America instead of people made in the image of God whom Christ died for. And some of you need to hear this. No one... Loves your liberal lesbian neighbor more than Jesus Christ does. And you should be a close second. And if you're not, you're doing it wrong. What does that mean? To love? Yes, it means to love them enough to speak up about their sin. But guess what? It means to love them until the point they come to repentance. As a matter of fact, that's modeling the love of God. You know what the Bible says? That it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. And we think, oh, it's, it's getting harder to preach that message out in the culture. Culture is getting more hostile to biblical truth. I promise you, Jeremiah and every single prophet felt the same way, but love compelled them to go. And did not Jesus say, hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But here's the difference between those who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. When the world hates us for the message that we preach, guess what's different about us? We love them uh, in return. And so the secret sauce of Christianity is not political influence, it's love. Jesus had no power, but yet he had all the influence. As a matter of fact, when he studied the Gospels, the Bible says when they tried to capture him and make him king, and put him into a place of political power, he fled and escaped from them. And so love, not power, is the key to boldness. And so we should ask God to grow our love for others as opposed to hating them for not sharing our values. Here, here's, listen, if you and I are getting it right, here, here's what this should look like. The people who do not share our values should never question if they're valued deeply by us. The great Bible teacher Warren Wearsby said this. He said, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. And so here are the prophets in a culture that did not like their message with an assignment that was unenviable, going to preach a message they knew was not going to be received well, which you may feel we're in a similar place in our culture, but guess what? Love compelled them to move forward. And so Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, man, I'm too young. Like, I'm not gifted, and God says, hey, just surrender, and I'll put the words in your mouth. I've called you to this, and God has called every follower of Christ 
to a similar mission in our culture. Fast forward to chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God was speaking as a father who's weeping over his wayward children. And so, listen, God's not excited or quick to exile his people. And you and I have, listen, let's just call it what it is. If you and I had been cheated on as many times as God had been by his covenant people of Israel, listen, we'd have been out like a scout on a new route, right? We're like, I can find someone better than you, right? Aren't you glad that you're not like God, right? And so God is patient and merciful and loving. And so listen to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Here's what it says. He says, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you. The kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, which is like an engagement. When you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. And so, so here, here's what he's saying. Listen, he's like a father. He's saying, I, I remember when we first started this relationship. I still long for us to get back to the place where that relationship was tender and intimate and you trusted me. And so even though God is warning them and Jeremiah the prophet is warning them, said, hey, if you don't turn back, judgment will come even though you're God's covenant people. You're not exempt from God's judgment. And here over and over God's pleading, please don't make me do that. Right? Like God's the only parent who could ever say with integrity, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Right? You ever tell your kids that? By the way, when they get older, you should just get up and apologize for lying because spankings hurt. Amen? But God can say it with integrity. And so he's pleading out here in chapter 2. He says, hey, I don't want to do this. I'm longing for you to come back into a right relationship with me. We'll read a couple of verses out of the next chapters. Skip forward to chapter 4, verse 7. God is still pleading, still patient. Chapter 4, verse 7 says this, a lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations is sent out, he has gone out from his place to make you uh, land a waste, your cities will be ruins without inhabitant, he's saying, hey listen, if you don't repent, judgment's coming, being God's special covenant people does not exempt you, judgment is coming, please come back, those from the north are, they're going to be here soon, they're, they're going to destroy you. If you don't turn to me and let me deliver you, chapter 5, verse 1, he keeps pleading. By the way, if everybody everybody says, hey, the reason I don't believe the Bible is because the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the same. You know, the God of the New Testament's love and grace and the Old Testament, and he's angry and all that kind of thing. Listen, read read the book of Jeremiah over and he's pleading, 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 pleading. Chapter 5, verse 1, still pleading. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Here's what he's saying. Look around. If you can find one person who will turn towards me, then I will uh, hold back on this destruction that's coming upon. Can you just find one righteous person? And so don't miss what's being taught here about biblical love. God's pleading for uh, his covenant people out of love to come back to me. But at the same time, he's also modeling that biblical love is not the absence of accountability. He's saying, I love you. But if, in fact, you continue in your sin, there is accountability 
for your actions. And so when we love people, we hold them accountable to their sin. Why? Because we know that left to their sinfulness, they'll destroy themselves. He goes on to say, chapter 13, verse 17, But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Now it's important to remember in biblical history that uh, Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are, are overlapping. And so the same point in redemptive history, uh, here's what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. tells us this, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, which the prophets, because He had compassion on His people, His dwelling place. Remember what God wanted all along? God says, all I long for, I'm going to build this nation so that I might once again have a dwelling place among my people. But I cannot dwell among you in your rampant, unrepentant idolatry. So he keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet, nine prophets over 208 years, calling them back to himself saying, please. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Let me me give you a paraphrase of what what that means there. The God of second chances has run out of second chances when it comes to Israel. Now I want you to listen closely. Because it seems like we're preaching a contradiction. On one hand, God is pleading God is merciful. God would love nothing more than for them to come back into a right relationship with Him. But at the same time, we also say God has given up on them. And since the character of God does not change, listen, the natural question today is, is the same thing true for people who don't know Jesus? Like, does God plead with them and and call them to Himself and they reject Him? And so finally, they run out of second chances. I want to teach you something incredibly important about understanding how the Bible actually fits together. And this is the perfect place to explain this at this point in the series. And and here's what I want you to understand. There is a tremendous amount of confusion about what I'm getting ready to teach you. So I want you to listen closely. I'm going to teach you some theology, all right? Now, when I say the word theology, what some of you just heard is uh, in the Greek, it's the word boring. Am I right? But theology, theos, meaning God, ology, study of, it's the study of God and His ways. I'm assuming that's why you're at church today or listening online. Right? So if you're excited to learn some theology on the count of three, would you just yell out hallelujah one time? All right? One, two, three. Saying that God is a merciful God, but yet Israel reached the point of no return, is not a contradiction. God is merciful. No one's outside of God's grace. So why does it say that they were beyond remedy? In other words, why does it say that they had run out of chances? This is not a statement about mankind being beyond rescue. This is a statement that this nation was beyond repair. Here's the theology I want you to understand. This is so important. This is getting so twisted today. Here's what I want you to understand. God no longer deals with nations as a whole like he did Israel. That's old covenant theology when God showed or when Jesus showed up it was no longer just God's chosen nation of Israel that was blessed it was the whole world through 
Jesus Christ. God's kingdom now expands to every continent. One day, we'll be made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so sometimes we act and think as if God is still dealing with nations as a whole, when in reality, that's old covenant theology. And so I've heard so much of this lately, so here's what I want to say very, very clearly. Do not miss this. America is not the new Israel. All right? That's bad theology. In the new covenant, God has a chosen people. They're called Christians. And God is working through them. So don't get caught up in thinking that God's old covenant still applies where he's still dealing with nations corporately. You say, how do you know that's no longer true? Because I've read the Bible, that's why. And here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And so this kingdom plan where God is dealing with nations collectively or corporately as a whole, that's old covenant theology. That's been eradicated. And the new covenant is Jesus Christ as our new king. And God is no longer working through a nation. God is working through his church. And that church extends to every nation all around the world. God deals with people individually, not nations corporately. God is working through the church. God and special country covenant has been replaced by Christ and church covenant. And God's plan is not with a nation like it was Israel. God's plan is to redeem the whole world to himself under a new king named Jesus through the church. And so when you hear God say that he's given up on the nation of Israel, that's old covenant theology. God has said, I'm no, that's no longer my plan. In the new covenant, God says, hey, I'm working through the church, which is in every nation, in every continent, and every tongue, tribe will bow down to him. And so what does that mean individually? Hear me this morning. That means that God is still the God of second chances. That means well, God will never look at individuals like he looks at the nation of Israel and says there is no remedy for you. And so if you don't understand that, then you may mistakenly think, well, I know someone who doesn't know Jesus. And people witness to them as there no longer any chance of them. Listen, no one's sin is more powerful than the grace of God. And so what's going on here in redemptive history? Let's go back to the people of Judah, the nation, not the individuals. And here's how their story ends. Remember, we, don't, we know what happened to the northern kingdom, right? Gobbled up by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And so the southern kingdom is pleading, 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 pleading. And so what happens? King Nebuchadnezzar from the Babylonians mounts an assault on the city of Jerusalem, and it falls. Nebuchadnezzar's army broke through the walls and started killing, capturing, and burning. And King Zedekiah, remember that godly king trying to lead the southern kingdom back into a place of repentance, tries to escape, but he was captured. And he's brought before the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they killed his children right in front of him. They gouged his eyes out and led him away to Babylon in shackles. And so the southern kingdom has now been captured by the Babylonians in 586. B.C. Whole cities on fire. They're no longer just a 
kingdom of debauchery. They've been conquered, killed, and exiled. Finally, God's mercy gave way to God's judgment. And Jeremiah the prophet stayed behind in Jerusalem, and he mourned the destruction as the city around him literally burned. That's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. If you ever wondered why, that's why. Because he said, I'm preaching. Come back, come back, come back, come back. They would not come back. God finally says, you know what? I'm going to allow you to be captured. And Jeremiah stands back and weeps. Why? Because he loved those people. Now, here's a fascinating fact. Remember back God's promise in 2 Samuel to King David? Remember what he said? He said, hey, through your lineage, I'm going to establish a new kingdom. Well, how is that possible when the northern kingdom has been wiped off the face of Scripture, like their story has ended, Because the Assyrians, and now the southern kingdom has been captured by the Babylonians. How is God going to keep his promise when one kingdom is totally gone and the other one is in uh, exile under the Babylonians? How is that going to work? Well, I'm glad you asked. God during this time is secretly orchestrating the events of world history in his upper story. And at that time, the Assyrians had lost their world power status. And the Babylonians, they handled their prisoners a little differently. The Assyrians just wiped them off the planet. But the Babylonians keeps them together. And they let Judah stay together, even as they're detained. And even in captivity, God is protecting them. God even sent a prophet to them while they're in captivity. And the prophet's name was Ezekiel. And you know what Ezekiel's preaching? What he could have preached is, oh, you should have listened to Jeremiah. I told you so, right? This didn't have to happen. But what Ezekiel is saying, he's saying, hey, this is not the end of your lower story. Because God in the upper story is still planning to move forward. He tells the people, God did not send this uh, to us, this nation to die. God sent us here so that finally he could revive us. And the prophets were so bold because they knew they had to warn people that, Judgment was coming. But we should be even bolder. Do you know why? Here's why. It's because our confidence comes from knowing the final score. In this series, we're trying to cover thousands of years of history, sometimes in 35 minutes, sometimes 40. Let's just be honest. Am I right? And it's hard, so we have to leave a lot of things out. So uh, just from a 30,000 kind of view, I don't have time to fully develop this thought. But, but here's why we should be even bolder than the prophets. It's because we know how the story ends. We are viewing redemptive history from the other side of the cross, a perspective they did not have. And because we know that, we should boldly proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. Because what we've learned is that every setback in human history is nothing more than a setup to point to Jesus Christ. And even though the covenants have changed, the character of God has not changed. And God will not break His promise to send a rescuer to His people, even though they're living in Babylonian captivity. And so Ezekiel just keeps preaching the message Filled with hope, knowing that a rescuer will come and redeem his people, and his name is Jesus. Here's what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verses 23 through 26. It says, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I'm the Lord, says the Lord their God. 
when I'm hallowing you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Here's what God's saying. My promise is still true. You may be in captivity, but I'm still working my plan. I'll call you from every nation on the earth and gather you together again and give you a land. And then verse 25, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here's what he's saying. He said, it's not over. The plan of God is still at work. We may be in captivity, but God is still working. A rescuer is coming. And so he's still preaching boldly. Why? Because he knows the ending has hope. And guess what? On this side of the cross, you and I should be even bolder. Every story he's saying, hey, I know how this turns out. It's what the prophet Ezekiel is saying. And the plan of God has not shifted. He hasn't gone in redemptive history to, oh no, I I didn't know the Assyrians were coming. Now it's plan B. I didn't know the Babylonians were going to take the southern kingdom. Now it's plan C. Listen, from beginning to end, what we've learned is that Jesus has always been plan A. And every single story points to him. He's the fulfillment of the promise made in the garden when God declared in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the head of Satan would be crushed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through him all the nations and his descendants would be blessed. He's the son that is taken to be sacrificed in the same mountain range as Isaac. He's the same story. He's the ram in the thicket of provision. He's the fulfillment of the promise to David that God will establish his throne once and for all. And he's the fulfillment of all the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that rescue is coming and his name is Jesus Christ. And his promise to Judah through the prophets is the same promise that he offers you today. God is saying, I'm not sending you off in captivity to your sin to die. I've given you one who can make you righteous again. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies that rescue is coming. And here's the good news of the gospel this morning. If you'll let him, he'll rescue you from sin and death and hell. That is the good news of the gospel. And you can receive it today. Would you bow your heads this morning? your head bowed this morning, and those of you who are watching online, I want to ask you a very simple question. Have you been rescued from sin and death and hell through Jesus Christ? The promise of God is unchanged. God will send a rescuer to his people. And just like God rescued Israel and Judah with his plan of a rescuer, God will rescue you today with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here, you're watching online, you've never received Jesus Christ, you've never been rescued from sin and death and hell by the power of the gospel, right where you're at, right where you're watching, wherever you are this morning, would you just right now ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sins? Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and rescue you 
from sin's power and sin's penalty in a place called hell. Would you do that right now? Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the rescuer of our sins? If you've already done that, you're here, you're in person, you're watching online, and you say, I've done that, but, but to be quite honest, I've gotten incredibly discouraged with the work of God in my life and what appears to be the absence of the work of God in the world. And I just need to be reminded once again today in hearing this story of God's people in captivity that no matter how scary the world around me gets and no matter how out of control my life feels, in the end, I'm on the winning side. And I just need to be reminded again today that we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And our King will win. And if you say, I need to be reminded and live in that truth, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? I'm discouraged. Feels like the world is out of control. Pray for me. I'm struggling. Would you just raise your hand? Amen. Amen. Several of you. God, I pray this morning that no matter how scary the world seems, that we would be reminded that your plan will never be thwarted. That we will be reminded that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so God, no matter what comes our way this week or this year, God, that we would move forward in the confidence that you've called us and you've equipped us and you've sent a rescuer who's victorious. That God, the same gospel that saves us from sin's past and gives us a home in heaven in the future, God, that same gospel should make us sure and secure and bold in between. And so God, help us to live with gospel confidence that in the end, Jesus will reign. And we're grateful for that truth and the hope it provides in the midst of uncertain days in the world that we live in. And so stable, stabilize us, shore up our footing in a shaky world. Not because we're gifted, not because we're strong, not because the right people are in office, but because Jesus Christ is still a victorious king. And so it's in his name we live and proclaim until he returns. Amen.